Chapter 14 of Music Talks with Children. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Music Talks with Children by Thomas Tapper. Chapter 14 Harmony and Counterpoint. Whilst I was in Florence, I did my utmost to learn the exquisite manner of Michelangelo, and never once lost sight of it. Benvenuto Cellini. On any important music subject, Schumann has something to say. So with this. Learn betimes the fundamental principles of harmony. Do not be afraid of the words theory, thorough bass, and the like. They will meet you as friends, if you will meet them so. We now begin to feel how definitely these rules treat everything. They pick out the important subjects and tell the simplest truth about them. The meaning of these two rules is this. From the beginning we must try to understand the grammar of music. Some of the great composers could in childhood write down music with the greatest fluency. Handel, even as a boy, wrote a new church composition for every Sunday. Mozart began to write music when less than five years old and when he was yet a boy in Rome he wrote down a composition sung by the choir of the Sistine Chapel, which was forbidden to the public. Harmony and counterpoint stand to music very much as spelling and grammar stand to language. They are the fundamentals of good writing and of good, that is, of correct, thinking in music. Harmony is the art of putting tones together so as correctly to make chords. Counterpoint has to do with composing and joining together simple melodies. A modern writer on counterpoint has said, The essence of true counterpoint lies in the equal interest which should belong to every part. By examining a few pieces of good counterpoint, you will readily see just what this means. The composer has not tried to get merely a correct chord succession, such as we find in a chorale. Let us play a chorale. Any good one of a German master will do. We notice that the soprano is the principal part, and that the other voices, while somewhat melodic, tend rather to support and follow the melody than to be independent. If, now, we play a piece of counterpoint like the G minor prelude by Bach, we shall have quite a good piece of counterpoint, as far as separate melodies being combined is concerned. Let us play the voice parts separately. We shall find equal melodic interest in each. The chords grow out of the music. Comparing this with the chorale, the main difference between harmony and counterpoint should be clear to us. We shall observe that the three voices do not proceed in the same way. If one part moves quickly, as in the bass of the first two measures, the other parts are quieter. If the bass ceases to move rapidly, some other voice will take up the motion, as we see in the third and following measures. As a general thing, no two voices in contrapuntal writing move in the same way, each voice part being contrasted with different note values. This gives greater interest, and makes each voice stand forth independently. At first, contrapuntal music may not seem interesting to us. If that is so, it is because we are not in the least degree conscious of the wonderful interest which has been put into every part. The truth is, that in the beginning we cannot fully understand the thought that has been put into the music, but by perseverance it will come to us little by little. 
This is what makes great music lasting. It is so deftly made, yet so delicately, that we have to go patiently in search of it. We must remember that gems have to be cut and polished from a bit of rock. In this case the gem is the rich mind-picture which comes to us if we faithfully seek the underthought, and the seeking is polishing the gem. Music written entirely by the rules of counterpoint is called contrapuntal music. That written otherwise is known as free harmonic music. In the one case the composer desired to have a beautiful weaving of the parts, clear as the lines in a line engraving. In the other, the intention is to get effects from tones united into chords, such as is obtained from masses of color in a painting. Neither form may be said to be the superior of the other. Each is valuable in its place, and each has possibilities peculiarly its own, which the other could not give. Pure counterpoint could not give us such a charming effect as Chopin obtains in the first study of Opus 10, nor could the plainer and more free harmonic style give us such delicate bits of tracery as Bach has in his fugues. If now you will take the trouble to learn two long words, later in your study of music they will be of use to you. The first is polyphonic, the other is monophonic. Both, like many other words in our language, are made up of two shorter words, and come from another language, Greek. In both we have phonic, evidently meaning the same in each case, limited or modified by the preceding part, poly and mono. Phonic is the anglicized Greek for sound. We use it in the English word telephonic. Now, if we define mono and poly, we shall understand these two long words. Mono means one. Poly means many. We say monotone, meaning one tone. Also, polygon, meaning many sides. In the musical reference, monophonic music means music of one voice, rather than of one tone, and polyphonic music is that for many voices. Simple melodies with or without accompanying chords are monophonic. Many melodies woven together, as in the Bach piece which we have looked over, are polyphonic. In the history of music two men surpassed all others in what they accomplished in counterpoint, that is, in polyphonic writing. The one was Palestrina, an Italian, the other was Bach, a German. Palestrina lived at a time when the music of the church was very poor, so poor indeed that the clergy could no longer endure it. Palestrina, however, devoted himself earnestly to composing music strictly adapted to the church use. The parts were all melodic, and woven together with such great skill that they yet remain masterpieces of contrapuntal writing. Later, Bach developed counterpoint very much more in the modern way. He did with polyphony for the piano and organ much the same as Palestrina did for the voice. There have never lived greater masters than these in the art of polyphonic music. There is still another form of writing which is neither strictly harmonic nor strictly contrapuntal. It is a combination of both. There is not the plain, unadorned harmonic progress, as in the simple chorale, nor is there the strict voice progression as in the works of Bach. This form of writing, which partakes of the beauties of both the others, has been called the free harmonic style. It has been followed by all the great masters since the time of Bach, even before, indeed. 
if you can imagine a beautiful song melody with an artistic accompaniment, so arranged that all can be played upon the piano, you will understand what the third style is. It is wonderfully free, surely, sometimes proceeding in full free chords, as in the opening measures of the B-flat sonata of Beethoven, again running away from all freedom back to the old style, until the picture looks as old as a monkish costume among modern dress. All of the great sonatas and symphonies are of this wonderfully varied form of writing. How full it can be of expressiveness you know from the Songs Without Words by Mendelssohn, and the Nocturnes of Chopin. How full of flickering humour you hear in the scherzo of a Beethoven symphony. How full of deep solemnity and grief one feels in the funeral marches. This school of composition has been followed by both the greater and the lesser masters. Every part is made to say something as naturally and interestingly as possible, being neither too restricted nor too free. Then, in playing, both hands must be equally intelligent, for each has an important part assigned to it. The great good of study in harmony and counterpoint is that it increases one's appreciation. As soon as we begin to understand the spirit of good writing, we begin to play better, because we see more. We begin, perhaps in a small way, to become real music thinkers. By all these means we learn to understand better and better what the meaning of true writing is. It will be clear to us that a composer is one who thinks pure thoughts in tone, and not one who is a weaver of deceits. End of chapter 14 Read by Kara Schallenberg, www.kray.org, on Sunday, May 10, 2015, in San Diego, California.